Hello. Well, I've um, been on a series of radio programs about this book. The publisher lines up uh, radio uh, stations all over the country. It's interesting how it's done nowadays that they um, they have you call uh, they call you wherever you are, and you may be talking uh, to New York City or Hawaii or anywhere, and you have no connection to who it is that you're speaking with or the population of the people or the listeners. And oftentimes they're rock programs and <laughs> I'm not sure what or whether if people are genuinely interested in this topic when I do call up, but uh, because you know what you're coming into, I will take it from there that um, uh, the topic has some meaning for you. It certainly does for me. And I hope tonight I can give you a sense of the depth of that meaning. My book is um, Lessons from the Dying, and as Arpita very uh, articulately put it, uh, it really is lessons for the living. One of the reasons I got involved in hospice care some 15 years ago was because it came out of my meditation. And what I saw was the value of approaching a subject that whether we want to or not, we are going to have to face at some point in our lives. And the longer we delayed accessing what that story was, I felt the more fear and residual uh, problems it would cause uh, all along the way. So at some point, I said, okay, let me go where this subject can take me. And I have found profound depth to the subject of death and dying. What you have to get over, all of us, I think, who approach this subject, is the fear and trepidation, the anxiety that the subject itself brings up. But once we go through that, we begin to open to a profound mystery about life that changes our very perceptions of living itself. I was here <coughs> in Oklahoma City three years ago, some three weeks after the bombing. And we did a meditation retreat. We had a meditation retreat. Many of those people who came uh, were directly, had experienced direct losses, most people in Oklahoma City had, uh, and had pitched in and helped out uh, during that very, very difficult time. And I was expecting to find a community of people who were uh, in grief. And in fact, there was a great deal of sadness and grief but the predominant experience that I felt from the people who gathered at that retreat was a sense of connection, connectedness. And many of them was, were able to express that that three-week period 
had in some way been the most precious time they had ever experienced because it brought the community together with a single heart, with a single intention, with a single compassion. And it was said that the compassion could be felt if just walking down the street. That is the power of death. That is the power of death and dying. And you have, most of you, have first-hand experience in that very thing. Now, last night, Frank Sinatra died. And Seinfeld got, was, last program was. Those are two losses, no matter what our relationship to Frank Sinatra has been or is, no matter what we felt about their music, his music, or the weekly Seinfeld program, they became a part of the national fabric, the national tapestry of who we are over the course of Frank Sinatra's life and the nine years of that particular program. And when strands of the fabric are removed, such as the ending of both of those, it changes us. We're not the same from that. Because death is not about I, it's about we. And that is one of the profound lessons of the dying. Is that it's never been about I. There's a great revolution happening here in America and probably in the Western world itself that is more powerful than I think anything we have experienced up until this date. It's more powerful than any Supreme Court ruling or any law that has been proclaimed. It's more powerful than any occurrence or situation or tragedy. It is the slow evolution of bringing death into our lives that is occurring in this country. And I think it is going to change us like we cannot believe. Partially stirred on, I believe, from two things. One is the hospice movement that is now over 20 years old in this culture that has ushered death back into the homes of all of us so that it becomes part of our lives. It becomes the part of the life of our children, you know, each one of us. It's calling back a part of ourselves that we have taken off and thrown away, cast off cast off into the distant corridors of the hospitals and now, or the nursing homes. And now we're reclaiming that piece, that component of ourselves. And I think the other component of this, of welcoming it back, was the 60s. Now, I don't know where all of you stood in the 60s or even what your philosophical bent was during that time. It doesn't matter. Because regardless of what politically happened, 
there was a change of consciousness that occurred. People opened up in some way. They were receptive. They allowed the possibilities, different possibilities in. And then as the 60s changed into the 70s, many of those minds closed back upon themselves and never wanted to experience that again. As a matter of fact, in the early 70s, they did a poll, the New York Times did a poll, and it asked the people who had experienced the 60s and all of that, whether they would ever want to do that again. And 85% of them said they didn't. But it didn't matter because the change had occurred. And even though they, we left that time, there was a secret that each of us were told that has stayed with us through, back through the stock market, back through the traditional standards and ways that we are now living. And that secret is beginning to reveal itself as the baby boomers age and begin to ask the pertinent questions that our parents never did around death and dying. And I think it's going to be a very significant revolution that occurs. And this is going to be a quiet revolution of the heart, which is where all revolution should take place, in the heart. Because death and dying is really about the heart. It is not about the mind. It is about us growing in relationship to wisdom and love. And that is the great teaching and message of the dying. I had a hospice nurse just recently. I'm a, a, the director of hospice of Seattle. I've been a clinician in hospice care, social worker, bereavement coordinator, volunteer coordinator, executive director, program director. I've done many, many different jobs in hospice care each one of them giving me a different perception on the process of hospice. And I imagine perhaps some of you are also hospice workers. But I had a hospice nurse uh, tell me, uh, as a new nurse, and she said, you know, I can't go to bed angry at my husband anymore. She says, I don't have time to hold that resentment. That's change. Suddenly our life can't be placed on the back burner. Suddenly we can't procrastinate into endless tomorrows. Suddenly there's a beauty that rests right here and now. I, had a, I was working in a hospice in Massachusetts and I hope you don't mind my hospice stories. <laughs> I was uh, working with a patient uh, on, who lived, whose house was right on the coast. And she was about 47, 48 years old. And she had lived in that home her whole life. She would wake up uh, every morning and look out as the sun was coming over the ocean. And uh, she said to me one time when I was there with her in her last weeks of life, she said, you know, I've seen the sun rise over the ocean 
for as long as I can remember, but I've never appreciated it like I do now. This life is about appreciation. And that's reason that my message to all of us tonight is a proclamation of joy, not of grief. Because death brings us into our sense of appreciation. And that's joyful. Within that sense of heartwarming connectedness, but let me, let me back up for just a second and say that many of you have experienced in some way or other a death or loss of, in your life or perhaps a near-death experience in yourself. You know that everyone doesn't die with love in their heart. That isn't the point to all this. The point is that the power and potential of that moment is there. Some people take it and seize upon it. Many do not. But it does not change the power of that moment. So as I speak about the dying tonight, I'm sure you could tell me as many stories about people who died in a very selfish, closed-down way as I can tell you about people who died in a very open-hearted way. But remember that the potential is there for all of us. And as I began to witness people going through their death, I don't think very many of them remain unchanged. And this is having worked with thousands of people on the edge of their life. Many people can resist and contain and maintain their character throughout their death. As a matter of fact, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross says, people die in character. But I don't think very many people go through it without being changed in some way or not. Just an inkling, just a one degree. And there's a whole potential when a person goes into coma that I don't think we really know what happens in that time. But I think there's a lot of work that's done in those moments as well. So the potential of death is is there. Now, the question is, do we have to wait for that to actually physically happen to us before we can bring that potential into our own hearts, before we can actually live that potential within ourselves? And what my book tries to do is to say, no, that does not need to be postponed. We can do that now. We have the opportunity now to make those lessons our own. And what I try to do in the course of this book is to explain a particular potential or opportunity or view that death gives us, and then to have reflections and exercises after that chapter which bring that, those chickens home to roost, so to speak, that make that an experiential understanding for ourselves. Think for a moment how your life would be if you did not procrastinate and deny. Think how different your life would be if you didn't postpone the very important things that are on your plate to do now, like the healing relationship to your loved ones, until later. When does that later happen? 
At what point do we say, now's the time to deal with these things? You see, we don't live the urgency that is very close to our heartbeat. In the Buddhist tradition, a philosopher once said, life is no more than the single breath that we take in and the exhalation that we give out. Like a bubble, how arrogant of us to think that we are even going to wake up after a night's sleep. In some ways we have to feel that urgency to have life come at us in the same way it does for those who are dying. And we don't feel the urgency because we become drugged with the everyday sameness of our life in kind of a floating boredom in which we're not really awake because we don't feel the need to be awake. Our life is going along smoothly, especially in the West here where we've created sort of the pinnacle of what our natural resources can give us. I don't think there'll ever be another culture because we don't have enough resources to replicate the comforts that we have here in this time. And so, but the the other side of that is that those comforts can soothe us in a way that dull our spirits. But the message of death and dying, and that's why I think it's optimistic, I'm optimistic about how we're going to grow as a culture, is going to reawaken us as we invite it back into our lives. Because that's the message of life. That is the message, to be awake. When Christ said, stay forever awake for the kingdom of God is at hand, that's the message of death. My father, who was a religious skeptic and scientist, was um, explained all the different miracle stories in the Bible and everything with scientific explanations and never allowed any possibility of anything else coming into his life other than what was immediately in front of his eyes. He was a very cause and effect rational man, very intelligent. When I was about, uh, in my early 20s, my mother died of pneumonia. And years later, after my mother died, my father confessed what had happened to him three days after my mother had died. He said, Rodney, your mother came to me. She put her arm around my shoulder. She whispered in my ear that I would be okay and that she would watch over me. Now this is a man that would have never allowed this idea unless it had actually happened. And he said to me, you may not believe me. He never did understand me too well. <laughs> but I know it happened. I know it happened. 
We love stories like that. Let me give you another one. Hospice is filled. That is the folk folklore of our time. Hospice is filled with stories like that. I worked with a patient who was very close to death. He was in and out of coma. Unbeknownst to the patient, his brother suddenly dies in an automobile accident. The family and I gather at a distant part of the house to discuss whether we want to tell the patient, who is very close to death, about the fact that his brother had died. The family decides that they would rather not because it puts an additional pressure and stress on the patient at a time when he needed to be quieter in himself. So we decide we won't. We walk down the hall, up the steps, down the hall, into the patient's room. He comes out of a coma and he says, why didn't you tell me my brother had died? We said, how did you know? He says, because I've been speaking to him in the tunnel. And he turns over and dies five minutes later. Now, where does that come from? <laughs> you see, many of you are nodding your head. It is your heart that is nodding, not your mind. There is nothing in this world that leads us to nod our heads like that in terms of our thinking mind. It is our heart that feels the connection and the rightness that there is something more to life than what we perceive it to be that allows those heads to nod. I could tell you lots of stories. I, I, they're fun because we delight in that. We think to ourselves, my God, you mean, thank goodness it doesn't have to be just this. If it were just this, well, so I'll tell you another one. <laughs> I worked uh, in an inpatient hospice setting, and uh, it had just opened up. It had been the wing of an old nursing home, and we had converted it, decorated it, made it very livable and with carpeting and all the things, that, like a home environment. And we started to bring the first patient into the first room. And uh, as that patient was beginning to die, uh, he put on his call light. We go in and he said, uh, he said, uh, would you get these two twins out of my room? They are calling, telling me to come with them and I don't want to right now. We look around and we don't see anybody in the room. We say, we don't see anybody in the room, but we'll try to get them out. <laughs> <laughs> so we do whatever we can. And he dies. He dies. Uh, about two days later, he dies. So his body is taken away. And another body comes in to that room. He stays with us for two or three weeks. Suddenly his call light comes on. We go into his room, and he says, would you get these two twins out of my room? They want me to come with them, and I don't want them to. I don't want to go yet. This happens again and again and again. How much proof do you need? How much evidence is necessary for us to see that this is a veil, that there is much more to our existence than what we give credit to. The message of the dying really is the message 
of that mystery. And the mystery is the flowering of our heart. The mystery allows the potential of other opportunities. It gives us a free reins to be creative and spontaneous, for it is through that mystery, it is when we are in touch with that mystery, that true spontaneity arises. It is not in our deliberations about life cognitively, intellectually. It is not in our discussions or our thinking or our plotting out that creativity and spontaneity arise. They arise when we are virtually in touch with the very core and essence of what life is. And when we're in touch with that, we wake up in a way that enhances every aspect of our being. Another hospice story, I had a, uh, worked with a woman who was 33 years old, dying of um, breast cancer, I believe. She had two teenage children. Uh, she was dying in her home. And as she got closer to death, she asked to go into our inpatient unit, which was unusual. Usually people, especially parents, will uh, remain in their home. Uh, we um, tried to discourage her from that uh, because we think it's healthy for the family to be around, but she was adamant that she wanted to go into the, into the hospice unit, so we placed her in our hospice unit. She gets into the bed, settles down, and begins to actively die. Around her bed is her family and the hospice people who are staffing that unit. It was a beautiful scene in the sense that we were all we had we were all holding hands around her bed and she was like this so that the circle was complete holding each of the circle's hands. And she was alert. Now when somebody dies, usually they're in a coma or they're too weak to be able to express what it's like to die. This woman was neither. She talked us through her death. And she said, I'm not feeling, sensing, meaning her skin. She wasn't feeling her skin, the sense, uh, the sense of touch. And she says, now I can't see anymore. And then she said, I, now I can't hear anymore. And then she said, my God, I'm no longer in my body. And then she tried to say something, and she died. And I looked, <laughs> I looked around, excuse me. I looked around at the faces that were around her bed. And we were like on the edge of the mystery as if the secret of life was going to be spoken. Now when you get hospice people anyway in a room, they can be very alight to the, any discussions around death and dying. But in this particular case, it was as if the secret of why we had gotten involved with, in the profession at all was going to be spoken. 
And I could see that there was an aliveness in that room from the very sense of touching the mystery and fabric of life itself. That's available to us. That is not something that we have to wait in order to experience. Many religious traditions place a high value on that moment of death because of the opportunities to touch the mystery at that point when we depart. But if we can hold life in a way that allows our heart to be touched now, to see the value and beauty now, then we can live that aliveness long before we have to physically die. Many of you have had an experience, perhaps in your own life, where you have come close to death. The fall off the ladder, the near drowning experience, the car that almost hit you, the heart attack. Most of us can conjure up in our minds some time when we were very close to the end of our life, or we felt we were. Remember how alive Remember how it reshuffled your priorities for a little bit of time until we were lawed back into the sleeping somber that most of us experience? Do you remember when you were very, very sick and then you got better and how it felt to be better and you said to yourself, I'm not going to ever forget. I can't believe I ever took this for granted. How good it feels not to be sick. That's the aliveness I'm pointing to, where nothing is seen as the same, but as revealing newness in each facet, in each expression of itself. There's a beautiful story. You see, I. I believe that the message of death is really the message of the heart. There's a beautiful story about a man who had Alzheimer's disease for 10 years. And he was slowly losing his ability to remember or recall or even identify and recognize who people were. And he had two grown sons who were his, who, who, were, who would attend him. And he had a very beautiful wife who uh, sustained uh, his, their marriage and their relationship through all of this rather difficult period. And it was to the point uh, after 10 years of this disease that in fact he didn't recognize anyone in his family anymore. At one point he was sitting uh, watching television with his two sons, he grabs his heart and he falls over. One of the sons goes down on the floor with him to start to resuscitate him because the man was having a heart attack. 
the other son said, I'm going to call 911. The Alzheimer's patient, in a voice that the sons had not heard in 10 years, said, don't go call 911. Rather, tell your mother I love her. And then he died. Where does that come from? Where does that come from? When the essence of what you want to do floats to the surface and everything else sinks. How is it that the mystery can reveal the clarity of that last wish when his mind was disintegrating with Alzheimer's disease? Death is about the mystery of the heart. My favorite story. I was working with a nine-year-old child who had cystic fibrosis. When she breathed, she had to crane her neck like that to bring the air into her lungs because of the congestion within her lungs. Her mother and father had recently split up from the mother's decision. And the father was in enormous amount of pain from this breakup, this separation, as well as that the daughter was dying his daughter was dying. So I was a social worker on the case and we were gathered around this young girl's bed and she suddenly asked us all to leave the room. Being the social worker, when we all left the room, I tried to prepare the family for the fact that she wanted to die alone and that she probably wouldn't be alive when we went back into the room. But that's not what was occurring at all. This young girl got up out of bed somehow because it was very, very hard and difficult for her to make any kind of physical motion at all and drew a big I love you poster with a big heart to dad took it back into her bed and called us to come back into the room. We came back into the room and she handed the I love you poster to her father and died a few days later. Maturity beyond the years. Not focused on what her own process was but alive to the pain of those around her. Able to reach out through her own difficulty to touch the sorrow of another. Her father framed that poster, and I'm sure he has it to this day. That's the power of the heart. 
That's the message of death and dying. We say in hospice care, when you become terminally ill, the nature of hope changes from hope of longevity, hope for a long life, to a hope for quality time together, a hope of meeting and coming together and enriching your life not from the products that we can produce but from the process of being together because dying is about we it's not about I and what often transpires, and this is not unusual, is that there's an enormous amount of healing that takes place in those last weeks to months of life because of the change of emphasis. Many of us have experienced patients in hospice care who lived a life of producing and doing. Most of us in this room live such a life. One woman whose husband she very seldom saw would work long hours into the evening. He was very, the husband was very proud of the home that he had given her, and the life that he had given her. It was a life of relative ease because of the hard work that he had put forth. And he did it from a sense of responsibility and affection for his family, but he never said that. And he never took the time to express that in relationship until he was dying. And then when he was dying, he kept calling his wife to his side. And he sometimes would just hold her hand and say to her, how much I have appreciated living with you all these years. And his wife told me that those were the most treasured moments of their 60 years of marriage. Why? You see, these are the messages for the living. These are the messages for each one of us. Dying really is about coming back to those <coughs> basic values that somewhere our heart knows to be true. Because we have no, we can no longer project ourselves into an endless future, this moment, right here and now, becomes treasured. Spiritual traditions since time immemorial have been saying that very thing. All signs point to go. Everybody's saying the same thing. The messages of the dying are calling forth the wisdom of the ages. Do we have ears to listen? Are we willing to take those messages and change our lives forever. That's the question I leave you with tonight. Can we just sit quietly for a minute or two? And now I'll entertain questions.
So anyone have any discussion or questions you'd like to? Yeah. <coughs> lightening of that load and um, I had lunch with her on February 15th and she told me that she felt and there also had been a history of depression with her mother and her family um, in mid-February she told me that she had never felt as good as she did at that point um, in her entire life she had energy she loved her husband she loved her job things were going well um, In about two weeks, she was experiencing some kind of additional co problems and contemplation with um, problems and um, kind of return of the depression. On March 17th, she overdosed and she killed herself. And I have, um, I've often thought back to that, and it brings it back to me now, your, your statements about the end of our life is often the point at which our heart message is the clearest. And I'm just wondering what comments or experience you might have had with people who have um, ended their life by suicide and how that heart message comes to, comes to them. Could you The question was uh, around suicide and how the messages of the heart can come to somebody who prematurely takes their life as opposed to naturally the life ends. I really don't know why people choose to t end their life prematurely. There is a whole issue um, being raised now in this country, especially in the Pacific Northwest, because of Oregon's law of assisted suicide. But I have learned to respect an enormous degree people's choices that they make, not condoning those choices in terms of what my life what I would do in that same situation, but not interjecting my own reactivity when someone does such a thing. I develop an enormous appreciation for life and the fact that life brings forth an opportunity to learn through our difficulties. The messages of pain is really the message of, of a potential to grow and to learn from that pain. Many people have not experienced the freedom that is contained in unraveling or decoding the messages of suffering and therefore act upon their suffering in a way that prematurely ends their life. Whether their heart is open in that moment or closed to a kind of bitterness that they have and having been given this pain and having no access or understanding of it, I don't know. 
But I do want to say that I believe that we, as living people, can have a great deal of influence on consciousnesses that are still, that may have died, by just wishing them well. And if we think someone has died, I often say to my hospice staff, don't end your caregiving at death. Stay in the room. Speak to the person through your heart. Tell them that the confusion they feel is probably the fact that they don't know they've died. Their mind is still working. Their consciousness is still producing. And they can't get the body to work anymore. That can be a very disorienting experience, I would imagine. And so we don't leave our relationship at the moment that there is a transition. 